Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Here's a strange fact for you. By the year 2000, roughly half the population of Earth had never made or received a phone call. I know it seems a little hard to believe, but it's true. Of course, in the years that followed, with the explosion in the number of cell phones, that number has dropped dramatically. Without a doubt, the telephone is one of the greatest inventions of all time. Long before the internet reigned supreme, the telephone connected people around the world in a way that had never been possible before. The idea of connecting people and sending messages across a wire is one that has been around for centuries. Examples can be found dating back a few hundred years of the lover's phone, that children's toy where you connect two cans with a length of string or wire. The earliest known example of it was actually created by British physicist Robert Hooke, who built a similar device for an experiment. By the 1800s, various inventors began experimenting with using electricity to aid the transmission of messages along wires. Starting with the first working telegraph, which was created in 1816 by an English inventor named Francis Rollins, all the way until 1876 when Alexander Graham Bell was awarded the first U.S. patent for the modern telephone. By the way, contrary to popular belief, Bell wasn't the sole inventor of the telephone. But he is the guy who beat a number of other inventors working on the same idea of electronic transmission of the human voice across wires to the patent office. Think about all the people you've probably spoken to on the phone throughout your life. Those disembodied voices coming to you from far away. Everyone from your best friends and closest loved ones, to the telemarketers and other total strangers you may have spoken to. Then think about everything you don't know about the people you're speaking to. There's something about the intimacy of speaking to someone on the phone that inspires confidence. Even when you're talking to a complete stranger. That alleged telemarketer you've been speaking to? You may end up divulging your private information to them without knowing the first thing about who it is you're really talking to. Just a reminder, Ted Bundy used to work at a suicide prevention hotline. Think about that the next time you tell a stranger on the phone some personal details about yourself. As remarkable an invention as the telephone is, it also has its dark side. Throughout history, there have been numerous tales of telephone calls that ended in tragedy. Phone calls that ended in murder, mayhem, and sometimes even calls that seem to originate from beyond the grave. I'm Nate Hale, and the calls are coming from inside the house. And this is The Conspirators.
Despite what TV shows and the movies have taught us, the thing about real, honest-to-goodness murder mysteries is how rare they really are. The vast majority of murders are committed by someone the victim knew, and the police are usually able to make an arrest fairly quickly. Or at the very least, they end up with a pretty good idea of who done it early on, even if they can't prove it in a court of law. But occasionally, one of those really baffling mysteries comes along that manages to confound investigators. The kind of mystery that captivates the public's attention and becomes a source of speculation for decades after. Such is the case of the murder of Julia Wallace. In 1931, the mystery surrounding the Liverpool housewife's murder would prove so baffling that it would capture the attention of several famous mystery writers, including Dorothy L. Sayers, P.D. James, and Raymond Chandler, the creator of one of my own favorite fictional detectives, Philip Marlowe. On January 21, 1931, 52-year-old insurance salesman William Herbert Wallace boarded a tram looking for an address he had never heard before. He was clearly agitated, and he made a point to repeatedly pester the tram's conductor and ticket inspector to let him know when he reached his stop. Even as he finally reached his destination, Wallace made a point of letting everyone within earshot know that he was a complete stranger to this neighborhood. The address the voice on the phone had sent him looking for was 25 Menlove Gardens East, and by now Wallace was beginning to wonder aloud if he'd been sent on a wild goose chase. Wallace was a member of a local chess club, and the night before, on January 19th, a call came in at the cafe where he played, asking for him personally. The caller identified himself as R.M. Qualtro, and even though Wallace only played at the cafe from time to time, it appeared the man knew he'd be there on that particular evening. The caller left a message with the chess club captain asking to meet Wallace the following night, promptly at 7.30 p.m. regarding insurance business. Wallace never heard of Qualtro before, and he thought it was especially odd the man called for him at the cafe of all places rather than his home. But times were tough in 1931. The Great Depression had hit Britain nearly as hard as it had in America, and Wallace couldn't afford to turn away business. All of which brought Wallace to the unfamiliar neighborhood he now found himself traipsing through on this chilly winter night, looking for an address he was becoming increasingly certain did not exist. He asked everyone he encountered on the streets if they had ever heard of 25 Men Love Gardens East, including a newspaper seller and a policeman. On each occasion, Wallace made a special point of mentioning the time of his appointment with the mysterious Mr. Qualtro. Later on, some investigators would cite this as Wallace attempting to shore up an ironclad alibi for himself. By the time 7.30 came and went, Wallace was beginning to believe he'd been the victim of an unfunny prank. According to everyone he asked, there was no 25 men love gardens east in this neighborhood. He even walked several blocks out of his way and found 25 men love gardens west, but the occupants of that residence had no idea who R.M. Qualtro was. Eventually, Wallace gave up cursing under his breath and headed home in frustration. At around 8.45 p.m., Wallace's next-door neighbors John and Florence Johnston saw him standing outside his house looking perturbed. He told them both the front and back door to his house were locked, and for some unknown reason would not open. He asked them if they'd noticed anything unusual that evening. They told him they hadn't. They followed Wallace around to the back of his house, and this time, strangely enough, Wallace was able to open the door. 
As the Johnstons waited outside, Wallace went in and lit a lamp. Moments later, he announced loudly, Oh, come and see. She's been killed. Inside, the Johnstons were horrified to discover Julia Wallace's dead body laid out face down next to the gas fireplace. She'd been beaten to death. Sprays of blood dotted the walls around her body. Wallace stood there looking pale and shaken in the flickering firelight. The Merseyside police were on the scene within 25 minutes of Wallace discovering his wife's body. In 1919, the police force had been severely weakened by a major strike that led to half the staff being fired. Even then, more than a decade later, most of those positions had not been filled. And the ones that had were staffed by officers who were not properly qualified to investigate a murder. Upon inspection of his home, Wallace would tell police that it appeared someone had broken into a locked cupboard, where he kept his insurance collection money, from which four pounds had been stolen. They asked the Liverpool Daily Post staff photographer to come in and do double duty as the official police photographer. A local forensics lecturer named Edward Whitley McFall was also called in to survey the scene, although many people would fault him later on for bungling the job. McFall failed to make the proper test to determine the time of death, and although he at first claimed Julia Wallace died only 45 minutes earlier at 8 p.m., he would later change his story and move the time back two hours earlier. Many investigators over the years criticized McFall's failure to do any basic tests, like measuring the cadaver's temperature, observing post-mortem lividity, or analyzing stomach contents, all of which can be used to pinpoint a more precise time of death. Instead, he chose to go with his own rather fluid instincts as to when the victim had been killed. An examination of the body showed that Julia Wallace had been beaten to death. Whoever had done it bashed her skull in with 11 blows from a blunt object. Based on the singed Macintosh coat her body had been found lying on, police believed whoever killed Julia Wallace had done so right there in front of the fireplace. Detective Superintendent Hubert Rory Moore turned his suspicions on William Herbert Wallace almost immediately. Superintendent Moore allowed for the possibility that the murder may have been the work of a burglar who had been plaguing the area over the previous months. But in Moore's experience, the spouse was always the most likely suspect. After news of the murder broke in the press, some rather ridiculous rumors began to spread that the mild-mannered insurance salesman was an opium addict and a secret disciple of Aleister Crowley, who had affairs with multiple women. Other people claimed Wallace had been having an affair with Julia's sister, and that he murdered her for the insurance money. Yet another rumor claimed that Julia had been terminally ill, and that Wallace's murder of her had been a mercy killing. Of course, all these rumors were baseless. The closest Wallace came to opium was an interest he had in basic chemistry, and it turned out Julia was only insured for 20 pounds. No evidence was ever found of Wallace ever having an affair with anyone either. There were other problems with Wallace being the killer as well. For one thing, the murder was so violent that blood covered the seven-foot walls all the way up to the ceiling. Surely whoever killed Julia Wallace would have been drenched in the red stuff before they fled the scene. But no blood was found on Wallace. They also couldn't locate the murder weapon either. Although a cleaning person would later tell police that both the metal fireplace poker and an iron bar from the parlor appeared to be missing. Years later, when the place was being torn down, they would find the missing poker buried in the back of the fireplace. Wallace told the police his odd story about his missed appointment with a man calling himself R.M. Qualtro. A Liverpool telephone operator was able to trace the call made to the chess club to a phone booth only 400 yards away from Wallace's front door. 
Interestingly, the same phone booth stood adjacent to the place where Wallace caught the tram to his chess club the night before the murder. It would have been quite convenient for Wallace himself to have placed the call before hopping a tram. Friends and acquaintances would come forward to characterize Wallace's relationship with his wife as strained at best. They were married for 18 years, and by most accounts, they weren't particularly happy ones. Julia Wallace had been a stern and fastidious woman, and Wallace was thought of as something of an oddball. As far as anyone could tell, there was no love to be had between them. It didn't come as much of a surprise to anyone that Wallace may have finally snapped and murdered his wife. Police came to believe that Wallace's strange behavior the night of the murder had all been an act in order to secure his alibi. The real problem with Wallace being the perpetrator, though, was time. Witnesses could firmly place him on the tram at 7.06 p.m. Several others confirmed seeing Julia Wallace alive and well between 6.30 and 6.45 p.m. This would only give Wallace a window of about 15 minutes to murder his wife, clean himself up, change his clothes, and hop on the tram. Police did try to stage a reenactment of the crime and were able to prove that a young officer was just able to do all those things and still managed to catch the tram by sprinting for it. But it seems highly unlikely the 52-year-old Wallace, who himself was in poor health, could possibly have done the same. It's no wonder so many popular writers of the era were drawn to the crime. Raymond Chandler would go on to describe it as a perfect crime, because even though Wallace couldn't have done it, neither could anyone else have done it either. Despite the lack of evidence, a jury found William Herbert Wallace guilty of his wife's murder. Although he was sentenced to death by hanging, another judge who reviewed his case a while later overturned the conviction, and Wallace eventually walked free. The newspapers painted the chess-playing Wallace as a genius who had managed to plot the perfect crime and evade justice. In fact, drama critic James Agee described the mystery as having all the maddening, frustrating fascination of a chess problem that ends in perpetual check. But people who actually played chess with Wallace were quick to point out what a mediocre player he really was. In fact, one member of his chess club remarked that if he didn't deserve to hang for his wife's murder, he at least deserved to be executed for his chess playing. But if Wallace really was a criminal mastermind, he didn't have long to savor his newfound freedom. After receiving a constant barrage of angry letters and death threats, he moved from Liverpool to Merseyside. He'd experienced kidney problems for years, and those problems began to flare up again on Christmas. An emergency operation failed to help him, and he died on February 26, 1933. Some investigators have suggested the real murderer may have been a former employee of Wallace's insurance company, who had been sacked for embezzlement and held a grudge against them. Whereas others such as author P.D. James, were firmly convinced Wallace was the killer after all, and that he only got away with it out of sheer luck, because so many witnesses came forward with incorrect information that helped bolster his alibi. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. 
not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. One of the many benefits of the invention of the telephone is it has provided a lifeline to people in trouble. Think about it. Before the telephone, people had to alert the police or fire department in person. In a rural community with people living miles apart, this could prove disastrous if we were in trouble. But sometimes even in this modern era, those cries for help come far too late. On September 12, 2008 at 4.22 in the afternoon, a commuter train cutting through California's San Fernando Valley collided with a freight train at a speed of 83 miles per hour. Of the 225 passengers on the commuter train, 135 people were injured and 25 people died. One of the passengers on the train was 49-year-old Charles Peck, a customer service agent for Delta Airlines at Salt Lake City International Airport. He had been traveling to Los Angeles for a job interview at Van Nuys Airport in order to move closer to his fiancée, Andrea Katz. This would be the second marriage for Peck, who had three grown children from his first wife. Andrea Katz heard about the crash from a news report on the radio as she was driving to the train station to pick up her fiancé. Soon, Peck's parents and siblings who lived in L.A. arrived on the scene as well, and the family stood nervously by for 12 hours while the first responders dug through the wreckage. Then the phone calls began. Over the course of 11 hours, a series of 35 phone calls went out to Andrea, Charles's son, his brother, his stepmother, his sister, and his fiancée. In each instance, whenever one of Charles's loved ones answered the phone, all they heard was static. When they called back, the calls went straight to voicemail. They concluded this must mean that Charles was trapped in the wreckage somewhere and trying to call for help. With each call that Andrea received, she tried leaving Charles words of encouragement like, hang in there baby, we're going to get you out, you're going to be okay. But all she heard back was silence. The work crews managed to trace the location of the phone to the shattered remains of the first train. About an hour after the last call was placed, searchers found Peck's body. There was just one problem. Peck couldn't have placed those calls. For you see, it was determined that Charles Peck died on impact. Yet long after his death, his cell phone continued to reach out to the people he loved most in the world. By the way, searchers never did find the cell phone. Ironically, it may have been another cell phone that led to the deadly crash. It was later determined that the train's engineer had been texting with another engineer right before the crash, and as a result may have missed a critical red signal light at the worst possible moment. Today, the best explanation investigators can give about the post-mortem phone calls were that they were simply an electronics glitch following the crash. But I'll leave it up to you to make up your own mind what you believe happened. Another bizarre phone incident occurred back in Washington, D.C. in 1983. The Marrakesh is a popular Moroccan restaurant in D.C. 
And back in 1983, the restaurant, and in particular one man, became the target of a bizarre campaign of harassment by an unknown caller that went on for years. The restaurant's employees came to refer to the mysterious caller as L'Enfant, or the young one. For ten years, the person would call the restaurant dozens of times a day, sometimes with death threats, other times demanding money, or making lewd sexual comments. He used different voices, sometimes pretending to be a Middle Eastern man, a small black child, or a little girl to name a few. During the mid-1980s, the caller made over 7,000 phone calls before they finally stopped sometime in the mid-90s. Employee turnover was high in the restaurant. Nobody wanted to answer the phone anymore for fear of having to speak to L'Enfant. One employee even checked himself into the hospital after suffering a nervous breakdown. But no one suffered as much as the restaurant's manager, Bashir Kushakji. The Armenian Catholic man came to believe that he was the primary target of the harassing caller. And it all stemmed from an incident in 1974 when he was in Beirut. While there, the Palestinian Liberation Army kidnapped Kushakji because they believed he was a spy for either the Israeli Mossad or the CIA. He was held and tortured for several days, causing Kuchakji to eventually attempt suicide. His captors took him to a hospital where he managed to find help and escape. Back in the U.S., it seemed that anyone involved with Kuchakji became a target, including his pregnant spouse, who also received many crank calls. The abuse eventually took a physical turn when someone scratched a Star of David into the door of the man's Mercedes. One time Kushakji traveled to Philadelphia to visit the Marrakesh's sister location, and the calls began coming to him there as well. Eventually Kushakji had his own mental breakdown and checked himself into a psychiatric ward. Yet even after that, the calls to the restaurant kept coming. The man would spend years checking himself in and out of the psych ward while the harassment continued. The FBI eventually became involved and put a trace on the restaurant's phone line. But the trace proved fruitless because each of the calls were placed at different random payphones across the city, which would lead them to conclude it was actually an organized group behind the harassment rather than a single individual. It would be easy to simply write Kushakji off as a nut had not so many other people associated with the restaurant, as well as the FBI heard Leon Fon's voice. But no suspect was ever arrested, and eventually, the Bureau closed the case for lack of evidence. There was another case of a mysterious caller that the FBI got involved in. Like the case of La Enfant, they eventually wrote it off for lack of evidence too. Documented reports exist proving the incident occurred. But the implications of the terrible predictions the caller made will lead you down a terrifying rabbit hole. At just after 10 a.m. in Oxnard, California, a switchboard operator at General Electric answered a call. At first, there was no voice on the line, but the operator thought the caller might be in some sort of trouble. So she asked a co-worker to pick up the line as well. That's when a nervous woman's voice came whispering over the line that a man was going to be killed at 10.10 a.m., just minutes away. The caller sounded like she may have been middle-aged, and she sounded like she was reading things out loud. She offered up a series of other dire warnings about things to come that disturbed both operators. Terrible things about the country going up in flames and mass chaos descending on the world. 
the sort of things you might write off as the rantings of a raving lunatic. At one point during the call, the woman set the phone down and dialed somewhere between 12 to 15 digits. The operator asked the woman if she needed help. The woman responded in a clear voice, No, I'm using the phone. Then she hung up. The two telephone operators sat there staring wide-eyed at each other, wondering aloud what had just happened. 1010 came and went, then the switchboard lit up again with another call. It was the same woman, only this time she announced that the man was going to be killed at 10.30 a.m. At 10.25, the frantic woman finally hung up. Later on, remembering the call, the operator would report what she heard to the FBI. Agents took it all down in a report, but as far as anyone knows, the FBI never investigated the incident any further. At precisely 12.30 p.m. Central Time, which would be exactly 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, a limousine turned down to Fateful Street in Dallas, Texas. The date was November 22, 1963, and the man in the limousine was President John F. Kennedy. I think you know what happened next. On that unseasonably warm November day, multiple shots rang out, and the world changed forever. Of course, more things have been written, and more speculation has been made about what did or did not occur that bright November afternoon than I could cover in a year's worth of shows. And whether you believe in conspiracies or not, it is true that President Kennedy's motorcade had been delayed by about 20 minutes that day. Meaning, he was initially supposed to drive through Dealey Plaza at 12.10pm, which was exactly 10.10am on the West Coast. The same time the mysterious caller initially said the President was going to die. According to the operator, the woman also made several other rather crazy-sounding statements, such as the Supreme Court, there's going to be fire in all the windows, and the government takes over everything, lock, stock, and barrel. So who was this mad woman? Nobody knows for sure. Some conspiracy theorists believe the mysterious caller may have been an actress named Karen Kupchinit, who had made a lot of minor guest appearances in TV shows such as Perry Mason and The Andy Griffith Show. Karen's father, Irv, was a well-known columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. Back in the 1940s, he became friends with none other than Jack Ruby, who later went on to shoot and kill Lee Harvey Oswald. Whereas there's no evidence proving it was Karen Kupchinit who made those prophetic phone calls that day in November, one thing is known for certain. A week after the president was killed, Karen Kupchinit's nude body was found in her West Hollywood apartment. Somebody strangled her to death, and Karen's killer has never been found. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks as always for listening. I want to give a special shout out to Kaylee for clicking the donate button on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, and helping support the show. I hope all of you are enjoying listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it for you. As part of the Dark Myths Collective, I wanted to recommend another show I really enjoy. Eastern Border is a fascinating look at the history of the Soviet Union from a man who's lived it. Your host Kristaps is a resident of Latvia and shares with you many fascinating stories of what life was like behind the Iron Curtain. As for my own show, I hope you continue to spread the word and invite your friends and family to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Your ratings and positive reviews really help us grow the show. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again.